Uh, let's dive into part five, our final installment of our Make Room series. We've been talking in this series about the fact that, that we, we as the people of God must make room for God in order for us to see a move of God in our life. And uh, each week we've been looking at a different angle in the scriptures around that. And today's going to be no different. And uh, we're going to look today, in fact, I've entitled today's message, uh, is to make room for a miracle. And uh, we still believe that, that God is doing miracles today. If you believe it, can you say amen? amen? We believe that God still heals. God still makes a way where there is no way. Uh, that is the God that we serve. He is the God who makes the impossible possible. Uh, and uh, we're going to be talking today how we can make room for miracles in our life. And uh, today what's intriguing of this passage of 1 Kings 18 we're going to look is not only does God do a miracle, but we even see, I think one of the main reasons God does miracles is it actually leads to revival in a nation. And revival is simply this, our hearts being revived for God again. Uh, that, that it's our hearts kind of turning again once to God. And we see the nation of Israel go through a revival because of God showing up in a miraculous way uh, in the scriptures. But first, before we dive in, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you it's a lamp unto our feet. We thank you that it's a a light into our path. We pray that as we open it up today, uh, God, that you would speak to us. Uh, we come ready to receive from you. Uh, we just say we thank you for who you are, and we lend our ear, our heart, our mind to you right now in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. First Kings 18, if you have your, your Bibles with you, we're going to start in, in verse 17. Um, to give context what's been happening in, at this time in history, was that Israel um, had been on this slow decline uh, as a nation away from God. Uh, on, on a side note, usually our, our, our drifting away from God of, of even our own lives, when we pull away from God, it's usually, it's rarely ever immediate. It's usually happens one compromise at a time, one, one moment of disobedience at a time. Uh, so be mindful of the small compromises that you convince yourself are okay to make because that's how the enemy gets us. It's just kind of one, one little small step. And that's what happened in the life of Israel to the point where now they had a, a, a nation that was once centered on God now had these foreign gods, these idols that were, they were worshiping, they were following in their nation. And they've also been experiencing a three-and-a-half-year drought. Uh, now, that would be significant for us here today in 2022 in, in, in America, but that's even more significant to an agrarian culture. So when there was a drought, it wasn't just affecting, you know, the fact that you couldn't get certain vegetables in the grocery store. Uh, it literally was the equivalent of an economic depression because everyone's income resources were tied to rain. So here we see this nation in great distress and Elijah, as the man of God, as a follower of God, he comes in this moment, and he confronts, he confronts uh, in, in Israel their rebellion, and he, and, he, and he really calls them to hire, to follow God. And we see God move miraculously, and again, more importantly, bring revival in their hearts. 1 Kings 18, if you have your Bibles, verse 17 says this, that when he, he was referring to Ahab, King Ahab, the king of Israel, he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You have abandoned the Lord's commands. You have followed the Baals. 
Now summon from all over Israel to meet me at Mount Carmel. Bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Jezebel is Ahab's wife. That's what he's referring to there. Ahab sent word throughout all of Israel and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, How long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. A little interesting note, if, you're, if, you, if you like these little notes here. Mount Carmel um, actually was lying, sort of a, a land that was lying between two different countries at this moment, uh, Israel being one of them. It was a disputed territory. It was a, a place that was also common for trade routes. So it was an important, uh, even symbolic, of Elijah going to Mount Carmel because here was Israel wavering between God and, and Baal, and he's calling them. Uh, to, to stand firm in their faith. He's calling them to choose one or the other. I want to draw three applications, three points from this passage. And the first one, if you're taking notes, is to stand firm in faith. That if you want to see a, a miracle, you want to see God do something miraculous, you want to see revival in the hearts of people, we must stand firm in the faith. So Ahab sees, sees, sees Elijah. He says, here comes the troubler of Israel. He was socially outcast. But Elijah turns it on him and says, you and your family are actually the ones causing us trouble. Here's what he's referring to. Ahab and his family had followed God. But they allowed Jezebel, Ahab's wife, to influence them negatively to turn their hearts away from God. So here's what he says to Ahab. Ahab, you know better. Ahab, you know who the true God is, but yet you rebelled anyway. You are the ones that have brought trouble to your country. And in this moment, I want to just, just even caution us in the life of Ahab, because Ahab allowed his relationship with Jezebel to influence him spiritually in a negative manner. And we have to be aware of this fact that our relationships, for good and for bad, have an influence on us, would we agree? That there was a study done in 2018 in the Health Communications Journal. A 39, they looked at a meta-analysis of 39 different studies. The focus of this study was on physical health and to see how did our friends influence our habits. And they were able to tie your friends' habits to your habits. So much so that you, whether or not you eat vegetables is influenced by your friends. That's why I don't friend anyone who likes kale. Come on, somebody. That's just nasty, right? No one eats kale plain. Just a case in point. Um, no, but, but, but they looked at like whether you eat vegetables, whether you smoke or not, whether you drink too much alcohol or not, they correlate it with your friends. So who you surround yourself with is, it influences us. I remember growing up as a kid, I, uh, we're starting football season today. And uh, if you can't tell, I'm excited. Um, and uh, I remember growing up, I allowed some of my, my peers, my friends at school, to negatively impact my life. Growing up, and please, i got to say forgive me what I'm about to share with you, but growing up, I was a Dallas Cowboy fan. I was. I was. I have since repented. I have burned the starter jacket that I once held. Come on, somebody. Anybody else rock the starter jackets back in the day? Come on. I need to bring those back. Those things were hot, you know? So I, uh, I now, I grew up north of Baltimore, so I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan, so I've repented from my ways. 
of, of being a Cowboys fan. Um, no, but, but I say it jokingly, but in all sincerity, our friendships, our relationships greatly influence us. And here's the reality. You are, when you go to work tomorrow, school tomorrow, um, you are surrounded by some people that, that may or may not share your same value for God, may or may not share your same worldview. And you are called, listen, to, to that place. Let me just say this, wherever you are called to work, it is a holy calling from God. You are not just there to earn a paycheck. You are not just there because this is what I studied in school. God has actually preordained from the beginning of time for you to do what he's called you to do. So how many of you know what you do for work is a holy calling from God? Can I get amen? That means, therefore, you work unto God, not just for your boss. That means you don't necessarily conform to the cultural conditions of your workplace. You actually live according to God's word. So even if there's gossip in your workplace, you speak words of life. Can I get amen? If there's division, you protect unity. Why? Because you're living according to God's, God's ways. But I say to say this, is that, is that you are being influenced by people. And listen, the relationships we have, the books that we read, the podcasts we listen to, the people we follow on social media, are in, the media we ingest is influencing our worldview, whether we realize it or not. So here's what you have to be intentional about. Listen, I know I'm speaking to a room and even online full of people who have full lives. You, you, your work, you're, you're working many hours in the week. You're in school many hours in the week. You have family you're taking care of. All of, I know that. So here's what I'm going to say is that it's gonna have, you're going to have a hard time finding time to build close relationships with other followers of Jesus. So don't find time this fall. Here's my challenge to you. And I'm going to say this a little bit directly but gently, is you have to make time. You have to make time. You, you have to spend time around people who are going to stir your faith. Can I get amen? amen? People that when you go into work tomorrow, and regardless of what you're going to face, regardless of what you'll face in your classroom tomorrow, that you need people in your corner praying for you, speaking life into you, reminding you of the promises of God over your life. So when you go into other environments, you are full of faith and not full of fear. You need the people of God in your life. You need others around you. Can I tell you, we start community groups next Sunday. That's why I'm telling you, listen, sign up for a group or five. Can I give you one more challenge, though? Because we've been doing groups now for some years since we've existed as a church. And what commonly happens is on group Sunday, many people sign up. But can I tell you, the, the magic, the transformation is not in the sign up. It's in the show up. Can I get an amen from the group leaders? Group leaders are like, I got 52 people in my group. At their first group meeting, I got eight people. <laughs> Y'all be true to your word. <laughs> Sign up, but show up. Can I tell you, your life's not changed because your name is in an online directory on somebody's group. Your life's changed when you show up and you pray together. And you share your life together. And you encourage one another in your faith. Can I tell you, I'm telling you, trust me. If you give God a chance by joining a group and opening your life up to somebody else, you will thank me come December. And if you have experienced that benefit in a community group, can you say amen? amen. I'm telling you. I know your life's busy. You can't find the time. You got to make it. You got to make the time. 
because your relationships will influence you. If you want to have a, a be full of faith, grow closer to God, surround yourself with the people of God. And then in verse 21, what happens next is Elijah now, so he confronted Ahab. Now he confronts the entire country in this moment on Carmel. He says, how long will you waver? I'm seeing two opinions. Is, are you going to follow God or are you going to follow Baal? Now, upon reading this, you might think to yourself, Jeremy, we don't, we don't have Baal in our culture. We're not worshiping Asherah. They actually believed that Baal was the god of the harvest. So they believed that Baal was actually their provider, that Baal was the one that summoned the, the rain to fall. But we may not have foreign gods like Baal, but do you know we have our own little G-gods in our Western culture? Here's what Tim Keller said. He wrote a great book called Counterfeit Gods, about the gods of our Western culture. He says an idol or a little G-god is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give to give you what only God can give. Common ones in our Western culture is achievement and success at work. Or educational achievement. Or wealth and possessions. Or power and popularity. Or come on, a common one in our Western culture is control. Come on, somebody. Anybody here, you love control? You're like, I'm great with my life as long as I'm in control of it. Come on, somebody. That can be an idol. That can be an idol. Because sometimes when you trust God, that means your life will be out of your control and in his control. So, so here's what it can look like. You can just be like, I love Jesus. But if I'm honest, my security comes from my wealth, not him. I love Jesus, but if I'm honest, my sense of own self-worth and value comes from my, what I do at work more than Jesus. I, I love Jesus, but if I'm honest, my kids are kind of the center of my life more than he is the center of my life. I, I, I love Jesus, but if, I, but if I'm honest, my values kind of align more with my political party than they do the Bible. See, listen, all of us have, are tempted, and all of us have different things that might tempt us, that we are prone to make the center of our life, become the little G gods of our life, and ask those questions. Is there anything else I'm identifying with more than I do as a child of God? And can I tell you, all of those little G gods and idols are false gods just like Baal. They're not going to actually provide what you really want. Your work success will not really give you the security you believe it will. More money will not give you that sense of contentment that you really think it will. But as long as we, we, we leave this unchecked, it can end up creating problems. James, the brother of Jesus, said this, referring to people who are divided. He says, their loyalty is divided between God and the world. They are unstable in everything they do, James says. There's an instability. I remember I was on a road trip this summer with my, my family, and uh, when I go into a road trip, I like to see on my GPS the two different, uh, you know, directions they'll offer. So I'll look at Apple Maps um, because I don't have an Android phone because I love God. Um, and I'm a wise man, okay? <laughs> Just kidding. We love you if you have an Android. We don't, we don't fully understand you, but we love you. And then I check Waze. 
And I love Waze because Waze shows me, show me where the police officers hang out. Come on, somebody. Not that I ever break the law, but it's just good to know where Officer Johnson is <laughs> when he's hiding in that corner on the road. Just say, hey, hey officer, surveying the law, as always. Never a mile over, except when you don't see me. Um, so I, I checked both, and I decided to go with Apple Maps. So I'm, I'm riding, I'm, I'm driving, and I'm following Apple Maps, and they're telling me to like stay on this interstate. Well, all of a sudden, as I'm, as I'm focusing on what the Apple Maps is showing me, the, what I didn't realize is the Waze GPS started like on its own because I looked it up. And the, the Waze woman, who has a British accent in my phone, she starts talking to me. And she's telling me to get off at exit 16, but I don't see it on my, my app. I'm like, what's happening here? And for a moment, I was confused until I realized, oh, I had Waze operating in the background. So I had to close it so I could focus on the, the direction I chose to go. And here's what James says. In the same way, when you love Jesus, but you're actually getting some security or identity or value or worth from you know, you pick your idol of choice. He says you're like someone taking directions from two different people. You're unstable in everything you do. You lack, you'll lack clarity. You'll be confused because you're divided. Are you following me, church? So here's what you have to do. In the same way, you know, on the iPhone, you kind of swipe up and you can see what apps are open. You got to have to close the Waze app. Do some internal reflection with the Lord is there any idol that's been operating in the background of my life that, if I'm honest, has been my work, has been my, my, my possessions, have been relationship, been popular, whatever it might be? And, and, and with God, surrender that to God. And it might be a reoccurring thing for you. I've shared before for me, in my past, I have to continually resurrender to God. For me, is work. And, and it might be a constant resurrendering back to God. I love what, what Joshua says in, in Joshua 24, 15. He was addressing a similar problem in Israel. He says, he says you, know, you know what, you have to choose today whom you're going to serve. He says, but as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. And can I, can I just encourage you this fall, pre-decide. Pre-decide now. This fall, I'm going to serve the Lord. So pre-decide now. This fall, I'm going to read my Bible every day. If I miss a day or two or three, I'll just pick right back up. Pre-decide now. I'm going to be at church and worship every week. Pre-decide now. I'm going to join a community group and not just sign up, but come on. I love this, y'all. You're catching that. Show up, right? I'm going to pre-decide now. I'm going to live according to God's word and not just the cultural norms and mores. That I'm going to live according to the ways of God because as for me, if you have a family, my house, we will serve the Lord. Point number two is this. Point one is stand firm in your faith. Point two is live set apart. Live set apart. What happens next, so this is Old Testament. They would make sacrifices to their God. So the prophets of Baal begin making sacrifices unto Baal. And they're expecting these sacrifices will somehow prompt him to pour rain on the land. And Baal's not responding. So, so Elijah's like, maybe Baal's taking a nap. Maybe he's got do not disturb on his phone. Come on, somebody. Maybe he, he's, just, he's out of the office. That's why he's not responding. Of course, Elijah knew 
Baal was a false god. Baal wasn't the provider of rain. But it gets so significant. Here's what, watch this. It says, they shouted louder, watch this, slashed themselves with swords and spears. These four words I want you to catch. If you have your Bible, underline them. As was their custom until their blood flowed. You read that on first glance, you're like, these people were crazy. They were cutting themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom. Here's what Canaanite culture believed. There was a common myth that when Baal was younger, the god Baal, he died. His father took a sword and cut himself. And that when he was cutting himself and slashing himself, Baal came back to life because of his father's sacrifice. So it was a cultural norm and moray. It was norm. It was normative. That if you want to prompt Baal's response, just cut yourself. So it sounds outlandish to us, but it was normative then. And here's what I want to to encourage you with. (laughs) That when we go down the path of whatever idol it might be, when, when we follow the ways of culture that are in opposition to the ways of God, that the ways of culture that can lead to sin, which sin simply means you're missing the mark of God, James in his book wrote this, that actually all sin will eventually lead to death, destruction in your life. So what happens is when you begin to follow the ways of culture and the ways of this world, it will eventually lead to pain. Here's what Jesus said in John 10. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. He says, but I came to give you life and life to the full. How many of you know the ways of Jesus are the ways of life? Can I get an amen? So, so in this moment, and we've all seen it. Haven't we seen it before where someone's, maybe they wouldn't call it this, but let's just call it for sake of our message. Their, their worship of their work, they're consumed with work, has put a strain on a relationship. Their, their consumption with possessions has maybe led them to make unethical decisions. That they're, they're consuming what the relationship has led to pain in their life or somebody else's life. Because the ways of culture that are contrary to the ways of God will always lead to pain. But the ways of Christ will always lead to life. That's why Paul said in Colossians 3, put to death. Whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, greed, watch this, which is idolatry. That word greed, we can read that and we think in our Western culture, oftentimes used for money, like a desire for more money. That word greed in the Greek simply means a longing for more. Like you're this, this, this overwhelming hunger for more. So fill in more of whatever, more um, money, more success, more fill in the blank. And how many of that? That's a common message we're sold in our culture, right? More is better. If one house is good, two homes are better. If one car is good, two cars are better. If one vacation is good, two vacations are definitely better. Come on, somebody. If two ch- or one child is good, two children are work. <laughs> Some of you are like, you almost got me, Pastor. I didn't sleep good last night because of those two blessings. No, they're better. One spouse is good. Two spouses are wrong. Okay? Eventually it breaks down. But it is the common message of our culture, isn't it? The more, right? Just today, take a moment. Scroll your Instagram, Facebook, 
TikTok feed, and you will see you are being marketed for more. You need that new truck. You, you need that next vacation. You ever notice, too, because you just bought that outfit, now they know in the algorithm you shopped there, so now you're getting more ads? It's almost like it's training you for discontentment. Oh, you got that? You want another one? You got that truck? You want one more? You know, it's like, it's more. But we all know the more does not satisfy the void, does it? Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 9. Those who want to get rich, those who want the more, fall into temptation and a trap. That word trap means that you actually lose your liberty. That you, 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 your desire for more, you actually lose your freedom. You think the more is more freedom, but it's actually a trap, he says. And, and, and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. That word destruction means means you are cut off from what was rightfully yours. That when you're, when you're, when you're longing for something, you're, I'll put it this way, when you're striving for more success at work because you think more success at work will sometime, somehow give you more value, and I used to subconsciously believe that. So if, if like, it's not a new idea, maybe for some of you, like if you may be a tide, like your achievement, your success, your identity with, with your work success, your value, what actually happens is the very value you're seeking from your work, it actually cuts you off from what you can only receive from God. The very security you're seeking from wealth actually cuts you off from the very security you can only find in Christ. Here's what it plays. Just this summer, I, uh, I, got, into, um, I got into fishing. It's kind of a newer hobby for me. Um, I try to go once every few weeks. Uh, it doesn't always happen, but oh, this man got really tangled up here. So just in case you wondered, it is a real lure. Uh, don't worry, I'm not going to cast it. So, okay. Um, but here we have a, a, a lure. If anybody fishes here in the room, you know this. Like you, you put your lure out. This, this little uh, lure looks like a minnow. And you put this out there because... And when you put it, cast it in the water, which your goal is, and, and different fish like different types of lures. You know, your bass like your kind of plastic Senko worms, and, you know, carp like certain things. And you know, depending on what you're fishing, they like certain types of fish. And anyway, you put this little minnow out there, which will be more for a larger fish. And there's a, there's a science to it, right? Because you want to convince the fish. Here's what I, part of the reason I love fishing. You're trying to convince the fish this thing is real. So you cast it out there, and you kind of you flick it with your wrist a little bit, make it jump in the water, say, thing, oh, that thing's real. You kind of roll it in slowly or maybe put some speed to it. You kind of adjust it. You're changing it up. Because your goal is, I'm trying to trap you. <laughs> I'm trying to convince you that this thing will feed you. But actually, it's going to hook you. And what happens, once they bite on it, thinking, I'm about to eat good, that treble hook on the end of this, hooks them in their mouth and their gill. And then what happens is once they're hooked, you know this, right? Once it sets, you pull on it. And you set that hook. And once the hook is set, a lot of times if it's, if it's set well, they'll, they'll struggle, they'll fight you. But what actually happens, the hook gets deeper. They actually become more trapped than they were initially. And then eventually what happens, and if you fish, you know this, they'll give up. They realize, I'm trapped, I'm done, and I reel them in. 
Why do I say that? Because here's what the Apostle Paul is saying. That greed, uh, the belief that somehow more will give you contentment, that more success will bring you value, more wealth will give you security, more of that relationship will somehow make you feel worthy. It's like this fishing lure. It looks appealing. You think it will satisfy you, but all it will do is trap you. And the enemy knows in the same way in the fishing world, I have a, I have a toolbox, a tackle box with different lures for different fish. In the same way, the enemy, he knows, he knows what you're prone to bite. For some of you, it's finding your worth in your work. For some of you, it's security in your wealth. For some of you, it's relationship with the opposite sex. So what he'll do is he'll cast that lure out for you and say, come on. Come on, this is what you want. This is what will give you contentment. This is what will satisfy you. And then he hooks you. That's what Paul says. And it actually cuts you off from the very thing. It, 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 it disables you from getting the very thing that you so desire in your life that only can come from Christ. So what do you do? The Apostle Paul says, you put it to death. Meaning, Whatever area it is for you, whether it's for you, it's, it's, it's an idol or it's an area of sin. Paul calls out some sin, sexual immorality, greed, impurity. Sounds better. Hello? Hello? There we go. Come on, somebody. I always feel like I'm going to preach longer when I have this on. But he, he'll try to convince you that, that it's going to give you what you want, but it, it's, it's, a, it's a trap he's trying to, so you have to put it to death. And listen, we could spend the next 40 minutes talking about ways to put it to death. But let me give you one simple one that I think, I, I don't know if you can get fully free without doing this thing. I, I, God can do anything. So that's why I'm not saying it's a certainty. But biblically, and what I found personally, it oftentimes freedom comes by doing this. And that is, is opening up with somebody else. Let me say it this way. It is almost impossible for you to find freedom without the people of God. And sometimes in our Western culture, which is very independent, it actually runs counter to the very freedom we desire. Because what we say here at Catalyst Church, what freedom comes from, is when you have somebody you can take the mask off with and you can say, here's what I'm really struggling with. I have these anxious thoughts that keep me up at night and because the idol of my heart is control. Or I have, I have this addiction in my life, this habitual sin I keep falling into. I have this area of my life. So whatever that is for you, it's to open up with somebody else. That's why we have community groups. Not so you can do another book study or go to a new restaurant, or try a new activity. It's so you can find a friend that you can be really honest with, that you can say, man, I, I got some issues. And if you don't think you have any issues, that's your issue. Come on, somebody. It's called pride. And it's actually the worst one because the Bible says it comes before the fall. So, so what you need is somebody in your life. Then what happens next is he then, so he he. He addresses, as, as they sort of cut themselves and they're, they're experiencing the, the negative effect of their, their idol worship. In verse 30, Elijah now says, 
come to me. And he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. So he repairs the altar. Now, the altar is symbolic in Scripture for consecration or holiness. So, so what essentially means that we're called to live differently as the people of God. And maybe upon even hearing that, maybe you grew up in some church cultures where, like, you hear holiness and it evokes a certain reaction in you <laughs> because maybe you think of some religion you saw. But here's what Paul says about holiness, and I, I want us to, to capture this. He says that actually in Romans 12, 1, he actually says that we, we are supposed to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Watch this. Holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Peter says this. We are to be holy because God is holy. Now let me give a caveat. Holiness is not perfection. It's a posture. It's not saying you have no issues. Some might be thinking, oh, now he's talking about holiness. So next week i got to come to Catalyst. When, I, when somebody asks me, how are you doing? Blessed and highly favored, Pastor. Come on. No problems at all in my life. I'm holy. No. Do you know actually true holiness is associated with brokenness? You recognize I need God because I have my own issues. But he repairs the altar. So this altar was tore down by Ahab, and he repairs it. He rebuilds it. Symbolic of saying, listen, the people of God, that you need to reestablish in your life a sense of holiness and consecration because you are not called to live like the culture. You are called to live differently. And can I tell you, I believe, perhaps, I think in our 2022 Christian culture, because of religion we've experienced that maybe taught you, taught us, that somehow holiness, if I'm more holy, then I have more favor with God, more acceptance from God, more love from God, which is not the truth. We, we do not try to be holy to get more acceptance from God. We try to be holy because it's God's best for our life. I, I think we need to bring back some holiness in 2022. You're saying, Jeremy, that's old school. You're right. It's biblical. <laughs> you need to reestablish some boundaries in your life. Sometimes we allow grace in our modern-day Christianity to sometimes allow that to be a liberty to do some things we shouldn't do, to go some places we shouldn't go, to watch some things we shouldn't watch. That there are some things that as the people of God, we are called to live differently. Paul says there are some things you have liberty to do, but you should not do them because they're not helpful. There are certain places you shouldn't go. Yeah, you can go, but you shouldn't go. Because you're just setting yourself up to potentially be tempted to sin. There are some things you could watch on Netflix. Come on, somebody. But you shouldn't watch on Netflix. Because I don't live to conform to the, to the patterns of this culture. I live as true and proper worship. I lay my body, I lay my preferences, I lay my desires on the altar for the sake of Jesus Christ as true and proper worship. And can I tell you, your greatest testimony to those in your life who are far from God is they see there's something different about you. Not religious about you, different about you. That you live with a sense of integrity and ethic that's not seen in the culture around us. And we don't do it because we're better. We do it because he is worth it. We need to get back to this church. We do. Because... Our world is longing for clarity and a culture that conditions us for conformity. Paul goes on to say in verse 2, 
that we are not to conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind. Do you know, as a Christian, you are called to be a nonconformist. You don't conform just the patterns of this world. How many of you know the patterns of this world are ever-changing? That we see culturally, can I, can I be real with you this morning, church? Is that okay? We, we see culturally some things changing in our world, don't we? We, we see that the, the definition of sexuality and gender and marriage and family and how we should treat people and how we should relate to one another changing in our culture. But I do not conform to the patterns of this culture when they say about my sexuality and my gender and how I approach family. I look to the never changing eternal word of God. I'm not a conformist. My, in the Burroughs household, we love some Play-Doh. Anybody love some Play-Doh? Come on. It's great. But listen, Play-Doh, you can conform Play-Doh to whatever shape you want to conform to. Right? It has no backbone. has no firmness to it. Can I tell you? Here's what Paul's saying. Don't be like Play-Doh. Don't conform to the culture of your workplace. If they're engaging in gossip, you as a, as a, as a child of God are not called to be a gossiper. You don't conform to the patterns of this world when it comes to your sexuality. Yeah, I know it's commonplace to have sex with people outside of marriage, but my word of God, your word of God, says sex is contained for marriage. So I don't conform to the patterns of this world that's ever-changing and there's a lack of clarity and confusion. I stand firm on the rock of the word of God. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus, Jesus, the one who saved our soul, says everyone who hears these words of mine, puts them into practice, is like a wise man who built his house on a rock. You know what a rock is? A rock never conforms. A rock doesn't change. Can I tell you, our world is longing for clarity. Our world is longing for security. Our world is longing for identity. Our world is longing for love and acceptance. And you know where that is found, church? It is found. It can only be found in Jesus Christ of Nazareth. It's not going to be found. What we see in our world, which was happening in Israel, it's been happening since the beginning of time. Culture tries to build a kingdom without its king. Never works. Just look throughout history. We are called to build our life upon Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Number three is that we then enlarge our faith. So we stand firm in our faith. We live set apart indifferently. And then lastly, is we enlarge our faith. Verse 33 says this, he arranged the wood, cut it into pieces. He filled four jars of water, poured it on the offering and on the wood. He says, do it again. Do it a third time. And he fills the, the trench with water. He fills the altar with water. And then Elijah stacked the cards against him. And here's why Elijah was showing them in this moment that your God, Baal, can't even be trusted. He's not reliable. But my God can supersede any circumstances or conditions, even those stacked against him. Elijah had more faith in his God than he did in his condition. And if we're not careful sometimes, we can put a governor on our faith 
or limits on our faith based upon our conditions or our circumstances. I was at a theme park this summer with my kids. We ran around this, this uh, uh, racetrack, and, and we got on this, this car to go around this racetrack, and my son Judah was driving. I thought to myself, I'm going to put my, like, my foot down on this pedal, and we're going to go fast. Come on, I'm going to go 40 mile an hour on this track. We were buckled in. But as I put my foot firmly on the, the, the pedal of the car, it goes about 12 miles an hour. I thought, these jokers put a governor on this. Come, all right? I'm like, you took all the fun out of this. But we, we, we finished the ride. But I had this thought that in the same way this car had a governor on it, which disabled me from going fast, sometimes if we're not careful. Here's how I want to challenge us in. We can put a governor on our faith based upon our conditions. Let me put it this way, that sometimes our faith to be healed, sometimes we put a limit on that faith based on the medical report. Our our faith to be promoted, that sometimes we can put a limit on our faith to be promoted based upon perhaps our lack of network or experience. We can put our faith to, we can put a limiter on our faith to be married or have a child based on our age. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying we ignore reality. I'm not saying we throw out our mind when it comes to faith. But here's what I am saying. When I read my Bible, I see a God that actually supersedes the laws of science. Can I get amen? Listen, we, we respect and honor and, and acknowledge reality. But we don't allow that to somehow put a limit on our God. He is the same God who parted the Red Sea. He is the same God who brought down the walls of Jericho without one strike of a sword to bring that wall down. He is a God that raised a dead man to life. He is a God that opens up blind eyes. He is a God that healed a woman with the issue of blood for years. He is a God who makes the impossible possible. And you know what moves the hand of God in our life? It's not need. It's faith. He doesn't see your need and say, oh, you need something, here you go. No, he looks at, do you believe I can do it? Elijah was like, listen, my God can burn up this wet wood. My God doesn't need perfect conditions. My God is not limited by the laws of science because he is God and I am a servant. Then he goes on and he says a prayer. And I love this prayer. And the worship team can come. He says in verse 36, at the time of sacrifice, Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel, and I am your servant and have done these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know you, Lord, our God, and that they are turning their hearts back again. In this moment, he says, I am your servant, and I've just been faithful to your command. Do you know Elijah's faith did not come from himself? In fact, James says that Elijah was a normal man like you and me. He was normal. He was a normal human. Nothing special about Elijah. There was something very special about his God. And Elijah, in this moment, he says, God, you are Lord, and I am your servant. We serve you You're not here just to serve us. We center our life on you. And I believe, God, that you can do what you said you could do because Elijah knew God's word. He trusted God at his word. 
It reminds me of what Paul said in Romans 10, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. That we are called to be people of faith. And how do we stir our faith? How do we build our faith? It's with the word of God. Because when we read that word, we see, oh, he is a healer, so I have faith for healing. He is a way maker, so I have faith he can make a way. He is a miracle worker, I have faith he can do miracles. He is my provider, I have faith he can provide. Do not think that you will have an abundance of faith if you are consuming far more other media and barely consuming the Word of God. You will have faith in the opposite direction. Now, I'm not saying you close off all other media and just read the Bible, but I'm saying if you're relying on a verse a day, but you're consuming hours of social media and news a day, I'm telling you, you'll have faith, but it may not be for what God can do. That we as the people of God need to consume the word of God so we have faith for what he can do. Because can I tell you what you need, what I need in my life is not a move of a man or a woman, church. We need a move of God. What your workplace needs is a move of God. What your kids' school needs is a move of God. What this nation needs is a move of God. What, What this world needs is a move of God. We don't need a political move. We don't need a social move. We need a move where heaven touches earth. And we say, you are God and we are your servants. Can I'm telling you, church, he did it then and he can do it again. Do you believe it? I said, he did it then, he can do it again. Do you believe it, church? So listen. As the people of God, it's contingent upon us to make room for a miracle in our life. Because here's what happens. You can show the last scripture. I think it's verse, there it is, 38 and 39. The fire then fell, burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, the soil. It licked up the water. And when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, Lord, he is God. Lord, he is God. Revival through the nation. Can I tell you, God wants to do a miracle in your life. He wants you to have a thriving marriage. He wants to bless you in your workplace. He wants your kids to be blessed. He wants to bring healing into this world. He wants to move in miraculous ways. But can I tell you the ultimate miracle that God wants to see in your heart and in the hearts of people around this world is revival. That we get back to a place where we say, Lord, you are God. And I am your humble servant. I serve you. I worship you. I honor you. I glorify you. Can I tell you why we gather on Sundays? It's not because, oh, this is fun and, oh, I want to see people. No, we gather first and foremost because he is Lord. He is God. And we need a move of God. So we gather to worship. We open up his word. We come into the presence. We, we, we go to him in prayer. We gather with the people of God because we need God to move in our lives. Amen. Bow your heads.